0: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45
1: up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
0: Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org
2: to learn more.
3: Good morning. It's 8.30 on Monday, July 17th. I'm Desiree Frazier. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, the Department of Justice seeks to join a lawsuit against a new state law that allegedly takes voting power away from Jackson residents. Then black farmers in the state are an aging demographic, but they carry the knowledge that could help the next generation. As the climate changes, plus database for people convicted of misusing public funds is being developed. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. In a bid to join a lawsuit against HB 1020, the Department of Justice argues the provision that calls for the appointment of four special temporary judges to Hines County Circuit Court violates the 14th Amendment. And Mississippi Circuit Court judges are typically elected. The U.S. Department of Justice wants to join the lawsuit against Mississippi's House Bill 1020, which was signed into law. The measure creates a temporary court system within the Hines County system, which will utilize temporary appointed judges. All other judges in the uh, judges in the state are elected. Our Will Stribling speaks with Nisobe Lambert Haynes, president of the Jackson branch of the NAACP. She says DOJ's intervention strengthens the case.
4: I was very excited to hear about um the department of justice joining in on the lawsuit um, i hope that that will bring um extra resources to um, the fight against house bill 1020 um implementation um and i know that you know their um interest right now is only on the uh section about the uh, extra court system that's being established. Um, you know, however, our, um, fight is against the, um, entire bill. I'm excited, um, that they're joining the case.
5: Yeah. What did that say to you about the strength of the claims against the temporary judgeships, but, but their decision not to get involved in the, the, issues taken with other parts of the bill.
4: Well, I don't know um about the you know decisions not to be involved with the other parts of the bill, but I know that additional pieces around the establishment of the court system really took the bill to you know a new level of absurdity. Um, in in the establishment of a new court system, and when that was placed in the bill, it really made the bill more outrageous than its um original form and so i I understand why <laughs> that um a part of it uh would be um a priority <laughs> to um eliminate.
5: You know, as just a Jackson resident yourself that is very civically involved, what, what has this been like for you seeing the, you know, the state try to, um, you know, strip this this power, you know, away from, from Jacksonians?
4: It's very discouraging as we um, try to encourage Jacksonians and Mississippians to continue to exercise their rights to vote to you know vote on um judges and district attorneys to uh you know make these decisions to you know inform our um criminal justice system and, and of course sheriffs and and you know all of these other actors in our criminal justice system and then um to have a law like this that passes that says hey you know you're you don't have any say you know, in these systems or the system, um you know, is not working good enough. So we're just going to take all of your rights away um to be involved. It's um, a real slap in the face. And we know that our systems are not perfect, but we also know that the answer is not to eliminate my right uh to be involved. And so right now, you know, we're, Working really hard to encourage citizens to stay involved and to not be discouraged by what they hear um, on TV um, or or the radio, you know, by their state lawmakers, because it can get very um, discouraging to hear that um, your governor or some of your lawmakers don't have faith um, in you to make. Uh, the right decisions about the people that you choose. Um, But we're trying to really encourage people to stay active, to stay involved, and to continue um, to pay attention to these decisions and to continue to stay active.
5: The authors of HB 1020 and the Senate Bill counterpart point, it was a vehicle for tackling issues in Jackson that, that no one denies exist, you know, no, an overboard in court, court system and a rise in, in violent crime. Your perspective, what do real solutions to these issues look like that do not, you know, in in turn strip away, you know, the, the autonomy of, of Jackson residents to, you know, to, to self-governance and being involved in the efforts to make their city better?
4: Yeah, well, the the real solutions come from Jacksonians, number one, and um, they come from um, people who live in Jackson working hand in hand um, with the people that we elected to make decisions for us. Um, We have um, a Jackson delegation that we sent to uh, the state capitol um, to work on our behalf on state legislation And, you know, we also elected a mayor and um, council members and um, leaders at the uh, county level to also make decisions. And so even though uh, they don't work together well all the time, we still um, elected them from each of our wards uh, to make those uh, decisions. And so that's what we have to do. And when they don't work well together together, Um, we then have the responsibility to work in our neighborhoods to come up with plans to submit to them um, and then to hold them accountable to working um, in our favor.
3: Coming up, Black farmers are aging, but carry knowledge that could help future generations through climate change. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.
0: MPB Think Radio, whatever your taste, news,
4: music, storytelling, or how-to shows. Whatever your city, Natchez, Jackson, Tupelo, Cleveland. However you want, radio, smart speaker, smartphone app. MPB Think Radio.
2: What are the cool kids wearing nowadays? A bucket hat and fanny pack. I meant to say a belt bag. That's the 21st century name for it. You can get this MPB branded swag package by making a one-time $60 contribution. You'll also receive a year of PBS Passport to stream new and classic shows. A mix of current and classic. That's Mississippi Public Broadcasting. Make a contribution today at mpbonline.org.
3: This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Throughout the U.S., black farmers make up a very small and aging portion of the farming population. Some older farmers in Mississippi worry about who will continue their ancestral practices of sustainable farming. Danny MacArthur of the Gulf States Newsroom reports on their attempts to cultivate the next generation of black farmers.
0: It has, okay, power, lights,
5: everything to it.
1: Alonso Miller is showing me around his farm in Louisville, Mississippi. Right now we're in the walk-in cooler he built to preserve food.
0: This farm has pretty much everything that you need to provide food for yourself, uh, water.
1: There are cows, vegetables, and fruit trees. But Miller is scaling back. He'll be 70 soon, and all that land is too much to handle. He's keeping a smaller parcel and plans to sell the rest. Miller is a fourth-generation farmer. His family taught him how to preserve the soil and provide the land whatever it needs to be self-sustaining. He wants to pass on this knowledge, but he worries that it will end with him. His children aren't farmers.
0: And that, for us older farmers, to not have our sons and daughters involved in that, it's a hurting thing.
1: Black farmers in Mississippi like Miller, are an aging demographic. And they have all of this ancestral knowledge that could help the next generation figure out how to keep growing as the climate changes. These older farmers, they're basically libraries. They
4: teach us how it used to be here, how people used to live in community. And that's what we're trying to build.
1: That's Teresa Irving Springs. Her farm is about six miles away from Miller's home. She and her husband are actively working to bridge that gap between elderly farmers and the next generation. On Juneteenth, they welcome family, friends, and supporters to their farm in McCool, Mississippi.
5: She she took my frog! It's my frog, It's not your frog! They're in the
1: early stages of opening a training center that will pass on sustainable practices from older black farmers to younger ones.
4: A lot of times I apologize to young people because I think we're leaving them a wounded world.
1: Irvin Springs says she realized the importance of passing down this ancestral knowledge of sustainable farming through her own experience. The Springs were new farmers when they started several years ago. Miller and the local farming cooperative guided them. But Irvin Springs says she noticed that she and her husband were among the youngest in that group.
3: We thought to ourselves,
4: if we're the youngest, you know, and we're in our 50s, well, we're going to be in trouble if we don't harness or get this knowledge so we can pass it on.
1: According to a survey from the National Young Farmers Coalition, the vast majority of young farmers are first-generation producers. That means they don't have older family members to guide them. These are mostly people like me who um, didn't grow up in a farming family. That's Carolina Mueller. She works for the National Young Farmers Coalition. Don't have access to land necessarily necessarily and having to start from scratch. She says there are two big problems happening here. One, young farmers are having a hard time finding affordable land. And two, Mueller says as older farmers in the U.S. retire, a lot of land is going to be available soon. So there's a disconnect between folks who are retiring and the folks who are trying to get into it. Yeah. Mueller says the coalition wants to bridge that gap. They remove the barriers that keep some new farmers out of the field.
6: Doing some fishing
1: Markel Thompson is one of those new farmers who is reconnecting with agriculture. Is there a pond nearby?
6: Oh, uh, yeah, there's one down there.
1: And he's leaning on people like
6: Miller and Urban Springs for help. Me being young, it re-energizes the elder because they're like, Oh, young man. You know, we have somebody to pass down this knowledge to.
1: Thompson oversees his family's farm in McCool, Mississippi. He didn't grow up farming. In fact, this will be his first year. But his grandfather was born here.
6: He left, though, and moved to Chicago, had my mother, and I was just raised in the inner city.
1: Thompson's interest in farming sparked years ago. First, he tried growing things in pots in his apartment. Then he tried out a community garden, but it wasn't enough. Something was telling him to go to the family farm.
6: It was just like a faint whisper, like, hey, it's time to go home. It's time to go home. And my grandfather ended up calling me in the hospital, said, Markel, I need you to come home. I'm sick.
1: Caring for his grandfather made Thompson want to grow organic food and help his elders. Now he's preparing his first pasture for planting. He's excited for it. He oversees more than 100 acres. Often, he'll spend hours just exploring. It's partly fun, but also practical.
6: I was back there searching for a well that's supposed to be just open somewhere. I need to find that before I fall in there. That would be terrible.
1: (laughs) Thompson just bought the building that will be his future home. He's going to live at the top of the hill looking out over his new farm. For the Gulf States Newsroom, I'm Danny McArthur.
3: The Gulf States Newsroom is a partnership between Mississippi Public Broadcasting and public radio stations in Alabama and Louisiana. Ahead, a registry is being created for people who wrongfully spend or embezzle tax dollars. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.
4: What can you do with the MPB Radio app? Listen live, hear local news, view the schedule, make a contribution listen to shows on demand, and interact with social media. Get the app for your smartphone now.
0: Start your
2: work week with a morning of locally produced programs on MPB Think Radio. At 9, it's Deep South Dining featuring conversations about Southern cuisine. Hear interviews with interesting Mississippians on Now You're Talking at 10. And at 11, there's information on leading a healthy life on Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit.
3: This is Mississippi Edition. On MPB Think Radio, I'm Desiree Frazier. State law enforcement agencies are developing a new public database for those who have been convicted of misusing tax dollars. The system will work similar to a sex offender registry. Our Kobe Vance speaks with State Auditor Shab White about the database. He gives a recent example of a utility worker who pocketed funds and says the registry could help warn others about their actions actions.
2: She had been manipulating a computer system and using those manipulations as a way to steal the utility payments for folks who would walk in the door and pay their utilities. And she did that to the tune of $115,000. In this case, the prosecutor elected to file charges against Miss Bounds. And then she, of course, pleaded guilty. She now is a uh, is a convicted felon, so she'll never be allowed to handle public money again under state law. And then the broader question of what this means for corruption and theft of public funds in Mississippi, every time we have a case like this, and this is this is a good mid-sized case for us, I would say, north of $100,000, we hope that it sends a message to anybody else out there who is stealing public funds that we're watching and that eventually we will be able to figure out what you're doing. We're going to catch you and, and you will be held accountable. I think that repeatedly sending that message has led to some good results. So my office has recovered more money in the last five years, the time I've been in office, than in any other five-year period in the history of the auditor's office. But we also know that we're never going to be able to stop every instance of fraud or misspending. So what we hope is that doing our jobs and doing our jobs well routinely and then telling the taxpayers about it over time creates a deterrent to prevent people from stealing in the first place.
0: I know you mentioned that this is, this case has ended in a felony conviction, right. and they will not be able to hold or deal with public money any longer, but I wanted to also talk about Senate Bill 2420. This is going to create that registry of people who have misused public funds. Yep. Can you tell us a little bit about what this could look like?
2: That bill is an important bill that then became a law, and what it does is create a public-facing website that shows folks... The names and identities of the people who have stolen their money. As best I understand in that legislation, the statute requires the website to go live in 2024. That website is going to be maintained outside my office. My understanding is that that website is going to be maintained likely by DPS or the Department of Corrections. And so they're the ones with access to all this information about all the people that get sentenced around the state. And then Uh, they'll take that information, they'll post it online. And so someone like Ms. Bounds, who pleaded guilty today, will be on that website. That's going to be an important resource because if she goes to apply for another job where she's hoping to handle public funds and she's hoping that the person who's hiring her or interviewing her doesn't know about her felony conviction, this website's going to give a place for that employer to go so that they can see if this person's been convicted of a felony involving public funds. So it's a good resource, it's a good piece of information for employers, but also for the public, I think it's important because it, again, is another way to send the message that there are real consequences if you steal public funds, you're going to be on this website, and hopefully that's, again, another disincentive that pushes people away from stealing in the first place.
0: Whenever this system goes live, I think it has pretty obvious implications for jobs that are employed by the state or by local municipalities. But could this also mean something for businesses that take on public fund grants or things of that nature?
2: Mm. Yeah, it would depend on the terms of those grants, but you're you're correct to point that out. There's absolutely a possibility that a business or a nonprofit could be drawing down a grant that has some sort of some sort of stipulation attached to it that says, and you can't hire somebody to manage this grant who's uh, who's uh, a felon who's been convicted of embezzling public funds. So when they go onto that website, which is going to be run by the Department of Public Safety, when they go on it and look there and they see that, that will give them another tool, another piece of information so that they can comply with the terms of those grants. On the whole, for that reason and, and the other reasons we discussed, I think that this this registry is going to be an important thing for employers to know about, whether you're a public employer or, or you're a nonprofit who's pulling down grants or a private entity that's pulling down grants, uh, because uh, when you when you accept a grant like that or when you're running a government office, you're expected to know the rules. And so this is going to give you another tool to ensure that you're, you're complying with those rules around who can and cannot handle public funds.
0: How big of a concern has this been from either your office or employers throughout the state that they might be hiring somebody that might have misused public funds?
2: It's very difficult to know how widespread it is, but we know it happens, and I'll give you a very specific example. When I was not state auditor, so when my predecessor was in office, there was a principal of a school in West Mississippi who was uh, investigated for stealing public property, and ultimately this person pleaded guilty uh, to stealing public property, tens of thousands of dollars worth, and then... Several months later, moved to a new county, and then became a high ranking school district official in that other county. And so, this is a perfect example of how it's very easy for somebody to break a law in one place and move to another place. And if their new employer doesn't bother to check their felony conviction record or just takes their word for it that they haven't been convicted of a felony, can easily get hired. That's one example. In my time in office, we arrested an individual who's a clerk of a small town in North Mississippi, who uh, allegedly, based on some of the interviews that we had done, had been a clerk at multiple other cities around Tennessee and Mississippi. And there were suspicions that the, this person had been embezzling from all those entities. Now we eventually only caught them for for this one act uh, in in this one city in North Mississippi, but but we know that this is this is a habit of fraudsters. It's to take money that doesn't belong to them uh, and then at some point move on to try to do it again to somebody who doesn't know their track record.
0: So this could potentially be a tool to retroactively look back and say, hey, that person was employed by me. I'm going to look further into them.
2: Correct. That's absolutely right. It's another good tool for any of those employers who have those kinds of questions.
0: Have we seen any other states do something similar to this?
2: You know there are other registries so the most famous is the sex offender registry obviously but I I do not know of another state who has created a registry specifically focused on people who steal public funds and frankly that's a that's a good point about how Mississippi is innovating in a good way uh, now that this has happened, I hope that Senator England, who was the champion of this bill and did an incredible job getting it done, I hope that his efforts will be rewarded uh, when other states call on him and say, "Hey, how can we get something like this done in in Tennessee or California or Illinois?" Because I, I think it's a strong piece of legislation that became law, and um, and they should be they should be calling Senator England and asking how they can get it done in their states.
0: If someone is put on this registry, let's say it's earlier in their career, do you think is there any way that they can come off the registry or is it permanent?
2: Yes, there is a way that can come off the registry, and, and that's described in the legislation. I believe there are terms in there like five years after you finish your prison sentence or five years after you repay the funds, you're eligible to come off of the registry. So it is not a permanent registry. Somebody can turn their life around many years later if they if they do right by the taxpayers. Uh, but it does put folks on notice that, hey, this this is a person who Uh, certainly in the short run, you need to be aware that they're a felon and they don't need to be handling public funds.
3: Chad White is Mississippi State Auditor. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.